teams are getting aligned on the field. There's head coach Bill Walsh. The genius label, I think, perhaps is going to stick with him whether he likes it or not. A very innovative coach. He does things in a peculiar way at times. Joe's football career has blossomed rapidly, something he credits to 49er head coach Bill Walsh. His system that is, is just made it easy for, for me, made it easy for the rest of the team. All right, welcome into the second installment of our series of Oral History Podcasts. This one is going to be on Joe Montana versus Steve Young, the greatest quarterback controversy in NFL history. Just like last time, we spoke to some fascinating interview subjects to give us their unique insight into this crazy quarterback controversy. First, we spoke to Adam Lazarus, who literally wrote the book on this subject, a book entitled Best of Rivals, about Joe Montana versus Steve Young all the way throughout this controversy. They, they showed that the competition, while intense and clearly emotional at times and frustrating at times, I don't think we look at it, we can look at it and say that there was a real personal animus between the two. We spoke to Lee Steinberg, Lee was Steve Young's agent at the time. He's had the number one pick in the draft a record eight times and currently represents Tua Tagovailoa and Patrick Mahomes, among others. So his latest piece of work is negotiating the first half-billion-dollar contract in professional sports. Walsh falls in love with Steve, but there's a problem with going to San Francisco. And the problem is that I'm living in the Bay Area, and I know that Joe Montana is an icon. We spoke to Joe Starkey, the voice of the famous The Band is Out on the Field, Stanford Call in 1982, and he was the 49ers play-by-play or color guy on the radio between 1987 and 2008. After uh, Joe was hurt and he came back, I don't know of anybody outside probably Steve Young who didn't agree that he should get the job back, and I knew of no undercurrent. In fact, uh, when Steve Young finally got the job, the guy maybe most worried about it was Jerry Rice. Lastly, we spoke to Ronnie Lott, arguably the greatest safety to ever play the game, one of the best football players in NFL history. He was a four-time Super Bowl champion with Joe Montana, an eight-time All-Pro, and all-round football legend. Bill 
was always looking to keep the dynasty going, it didn't matter who you were, you were going to get replaced. And the likelihood is that you were going to get replaced sooner than you think. All right, this time I'm also going to introduce myself, Sam Monson, because I didn't do that on the last one, alongside, as always, Steve Palazzolo, my podcast co-host. Steve, this is one of the most fascinating topics, I think, in NFL history, and one, you know, we're diving a little bit deeper into the archives. This is going back all the way to late 70s, early 80s for the start of Joe Montana, and then the, the kind of controversy itself back into the late 80s when they made that trade. What would happen today if one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL was actually being benched and being talked about being benched and there was actually debate about sitting down someone as, you know, prolific as Joe Montana? That would be the biggest story for the longest time. And I know it was a big story back then, but you just multiply that by a thousand with with today's media presence. What made this one so amazing was how long it lasted. And we'll get to the differences between this quarterback controversy and any other ones in a little bit. But I think before we get there, we have to rewind, right, and set some background to all this because Joe Montana, in fact, both these guys now, Hall of Fame quarterbacks, so it's Hall of Famer succeeding Hall of Famer, but you need to reverse before that and, and get to the landscape of, of where we were when this trade went down and the 49ers acquired both these guys. Yeah, I think uh, when the trade was made at that particular point, particularly that uh, Montana was still young in his career, but had done some remarkable things. And in addition, Steve was really an unknown item because he was playing at Tampa, and that doesn't do you a lot of good because they weren't very good at that. So first of all, you've got Joe Montana, and what made his legacy so amazing in San Francisco is that the 49ers had been kind of a nothing franchise before he arrived and before Bill Walsh arrived. They were the guys that brought the 49ers the first of those Super Bowls. And Bill Walsh on the shoulders. All right, that's the greatest feeling in the world. That's what it's all about. For this team, for this coach, for this owner, for this town. And then obviously they went on to win four with Joe Montana as the quarterback. But before he arrived, they hadn't had one. They were one of the NFL's franchises that hadn't had success until that point. So Montana winning that first Super Bowl started this this beloved icon status that he had. And even when Steve Young arrived, he'd only won two of the four, but that's two Super Bowls from, from nowhere. So he had this exalted legend status even at that time. He was certainly highly regarded, and you know he had already become like, iconic in San Francisco for bringing them two Super Bowls. He had been very well known and had been very good, and was probably you know in the discussion of becoming a Hall of Famer someday. But it wasn't until later in his career that he became the the you know in the discussion for the greatest quarterback ever, and that comes simultaneously with the time that Young comes to town and sort of starts pushing him for his job. You know, one thing that Bill Walsh did that might have been really smart and potentially stop this thing becoming so becoming acrimonious and becoming you know an unworkable nightmare between Montana and Young is he would have his backup quarterback relay the signals into the starter the calls during games Um, so whether it was Montana on the bench whether it was Steve Young on the bench that guy was invested in the game and didn't just get to sit there you know festering about the fact that he wasn't on the field. You know, there's Joe Montana there in the cap. He's he's giving the signals. He gets the play from Bill Walsh. 
Then he signals it in to Steve Young. Second. Hey, he is not a happy Seven. camper right now. No, he's not. I mean, he, he he said that he he threw for three days. He felt that he could play, and then he was disappointed that he didn't get. You know, I don't three. think that that Walsh did this uh, for that reason. I think he just wanted his backup to be invested in the game, so that if he had to go in later, he you know he was already there mentally. But I think it might have had that side effect that there are all these games where Montana's dressed, he's ready to play, but he's not. He's the backup. He's on the sideline, but he's in there relaying calls to Steve Young, and he's sort of he's helping him. He's not you know actively praying for his sabotage in the sideline. You know, every great quarterback essentially has been attached to a great coach, and this was it was Montana, it was Walsh, and they were doing it in an in innovative fashion. And what's amazing about this Montana legend to me is that it's kind of built brick by brick, step by step with these signature games all the way throughout his career. Go all the way back to college. Notre Dame, he's buried on the depth chart. He's still not a starter. Third and four, Montana drops. He looks. Finds an open man. Puts it downfield. And McAfee at the 20. Down to the 18-yard line. He has the first of these comebacks. 30, 30 to 10 down against Air Force. Ends up winning. Montana takes the last snap. Falls on the ball. And the Air Force cadets and the Notre Dame Irish, lucky to win. With the final score, Notre Dame 31, Air Force 30. Then he gets, he's in the starting lineup at this point, and he has what becomes known as the chicken soup bowl. Lindsay, I guess cold is just a state of mind here in Texas, but I'll tell you, it is cold. This will go down as the iciest cotton bowl in history. As you mentioned, the worst ice storm in 30 years has hit this city. So against Houston in the cotton bowl, he ends up essentially catching hypothermia during the game. Tim Cagle is the quarterback. It's not Montana. It is the sophomore from Cincinnati, Ohio, Tim Cagle who is starting at quarterback for Notre Dame here in the second half. That's a surprise. They have him in the locker room feeding him chicken soup to try and get him back on track and get him back on the field. And Joe Montana comes in now at quarterback. Joe Montana making his first... And at one point, they're buried. They're 34-12 down. Montana ends up bringing them all the way back. And Montana has sparked the surge of Notre Dame here in the closing moments. Two seconds left to play. Clock will start on the snap. Houston 34, Notre Dame 28. Montana going. And it's a touchdown. Thanks. A touchdown taken at the corner. Unbelievable, unbelievable finish. Same thing starts happening in the NFL. Second year, they're 35-7 down against the New Orleans Saints, who have been one of the doormats of the NFL as well. Montana brings them all the way back, ties it, brings them to overtime, 35-38. And then the catch, you know, this this Dallas team that had been so good. The the Niners are three-point underdogs at home despite having a dominant record. Again, Montana brings them back from a, a score down, wins the game. And then the Super Bowls, the same deal. We start seeing these comebacks in Super Bowls, including against poor old boss man Chris Collinsworth's uh, Bengals. Montana leads them on this 92-yard drive, hits uh, hits uh, another touchdown for the go-ahead score. And, and that one. He's in motion. Montana, touchdown, John Taylor. 
there's just this series of, of punctuated comebacks that Montana leads. All of these sort of create not just this legend status, you know, uh, in San Francisco amongst the fans, but the team starts believing in him like that as well. All of his teammates start thinking, well, it, it never matters. It doesn't matter how far down we are, how much we're losing, how bad things are going. As long as Joe's the quarterback, we've got a chance to make this comeback happen. No matter who you are, he's not going to let you beat him. And so that's kind of the, you know, that kind of gives you a, a little sense of, of the edginess of, of, of what, makes the, what makes the story the story. That's what Montana's known for, right? You know, the guy who never lost any Super Bowls. They, they, they were four for four is when, they, when they got there, obviously. He was one of those quarterbacks where there were certainly years where statistically Dan Marino's looking better, especially from a volume standpoint. Montana always had good numbers and everything. But there was – that was the old it factor, right, that everybody likes to talk about. Like Montana had it, right? Even if you're having your worst day – in the fourth quarter, he's going to bring you back. San Francisco driving for the tying touchdown. Montana over the middle. He's got his man, Freddie Solomon, inside the 10, all the way down to the Saints' 7-yard line. 35-7 New Orleans in intermission, and the second half has been all San Francisco. 28 unanswered points. Now jump to Steve Young. At the time they make that trade, the, the 1987 offseason, um, Steve Young... He'd been, he'd had one really good year in college at BYU um, with Mike Holmgren as his quarterback coach. He had then gone to the USFL. As you look at Steve Young, uh, Fred, he's had a tough year. Uh... Obviously, the USFL didn't go particularly well. That league ends up flaming out, and he goes to Tampa Bay. Young had been a had been a bust. Um, he hadn't he hadn't lived up to the reputation, you know, those BYU quarterbacks. Uh, Right around this time, Joe, Jim McMahon, who, who Steve Young had replaced at BYU, um, you know, won a Super Bowl with the Bears. Uh, and they were, you know, there were Heisman candidates, and, they, you know, the BYU quarterbacks were looked at very highly in that period. And Young had not measured up. There's there certainly uh, no reason to believe in, in that environment that you know, Steve Young was going to succeed. San Diego Chargers were interested in him, the. the St. Louis Cardinals were interested in him. There were a series of teams. Um, and, and my whole point was that Tampa took less from the 49ers than they would have gotten in trade from other teams because we were pushing them to to honor the initial commitment Culverhouse had made to Young. What Steve didn't recognize was he was gonna have to he was gonna have to beat Joe. I can't help but think if we were, if the PFF NFL podcast was around back in the late 80s and we were discussing this stuff, would we be sitting there saying, Bill Walsh is crazy? You have an established commodity in Joe Montana and you're taking Steve Young, who showed nothing with the Bucks, right? He was, but, and you're just banking on his upside. I, I think Bill Walsh was essentially your hero in terms of. I want I want competition. I want the best opportunity of getting a quality quarterback, regardless of what it does to anybody's feelings. So, one, it wasn't a Steve Young specific thing. Like the 49ers were looking for a quarterback, and it wasn't necessarily Steve Young. Steve Young was the one they ended up with, 
but at one point they were in the Vinny Testaverde sweepstakes, you know, at the top of that draft. They apparently tried to get Jim Everett at one point from the Rams. The one guy I remember, uh, it's, in the, it's in the book, is Dan Fouts. Because they had Bill Walsh and because they had the talent they had, they had a young Jerry Rice, they had Ronnie Lott, they had Roger Craig, they had a great offensive line, they had great defensive players. I think they thought, we can win without Joe Montana. We just need someone healthy under center to, to, to lead us if, if Montana keeps getting hurt like this. They were looking for a, a Montana replacement, and one of the reasons was because Montana had back surgery. You know, people are talking about this as a career ender. He ends up coming back in the same season because doctors said he was crazy to come back. So we should not lose sight of for Joe Montana. His last year, on the 15th of September... He went into the hospital to have back surgery for a ruptured disc and to widen his spinal canal. Less than two months later, he started against the St. Louis Cardinals for three touchdown passes and was named the NFC Player of the Week. His surgeon said he was crazy, right? And most everyone else... Then he has a second back surgery as well. Bill Walsh apparently tells Steve Young and Steve Young's camp, this guy is, is not going to be able to play anymore. Now... There's debate as to whether he believed that or whether this was like, this is what I need to tell this guy to get him in the door. On the basis of thinking that Joe is going to retire, Steve then pushes Tampa to make the trade with the 49ers. But other teams were offering much more. And he never would have come to San Francisco to battle Joe Montana for the job. Because explicitly we raised with him the issue we don't want Steve Young competing with Joe Montana because even if he beats him out, there'll be antipathy. And we knew that in the mind's eye of people, whenever Montana retired, in their memory, they will remember that Joe Montana completed every pass, that the 49ers won every single game on their schedule, that they won a Super Bowl every year he played. In other words, the legend becomes even bigger, and the reality was pretty stunning that Montana had achieved. Well, one thing that uh, that Bill Walsh always stated when asking about uh, his his feelings about his quarterback and really any player on the team was he had a, a theory that he believed from start to finish. In fact, he, he used to give talks about it. He said it was critical, and he said it was very difficult for me. He says, I loved my players. I personally really related to my players. But he said, I always felt it was important that I should make a move a year early rather than a year late. I wanted to be sure that we would continue our success. And if that meant that somebody's career ended a little bit sooner with us and had to go somewhere else, or just be replaced by somebody else, I would try to do that rather than let somebody hang on too long. You know, most coaches try and keep get the hell away from a quarterback controversy at all costs. Bill Walsh wanted one because he believed in that competition at every position, get everybody looking over their shoulder to make them play their best. There were players who told me that that was something that Walsh preached, was um, making it known to everybody that your job isn't safe. And that was... Something several of the players talked about was that they knew that if Joe Montana's job wasn't safe, my job wasn't safe. If he's got his hand forced in 1988, 1989, two Super Bowl years, where did Walsh really stand between the two of them if he had to choose? Well, that's the thing. So I think he always 
defaulted to Montana being his guy and being the best option. But he, I think he wanted to keep Steve Young there to push to push Montana, to get him to play his best. He didn't, whether or not it was initially sparked by the idea that Montana was breaking down. You know, at one point he, had, he was getting the nickname of Crystal Joe from some of the 49ers media. You know, this was, I mean, this guy was... He was not your 6'5", you know, 230-pound quarterback. Like, there's an old Pepsi commercial with him and Dan Marino. Like, Dan Marino is this, you know, giant, prototypical-sized quarterback, and Montana's just this small guy, you know, who happens to be every bit as equal, if not better. He was taking monster hits weekly and getting injuries because of it. Lawrence Taylor was the only man there, and Montana took a shot. So that's another aspect of all this is, you know, once these two guys were um, on board, the door kept getting open for Steve Young because Montana kept getting hurt. He kept getting banged up, kept missing some time. So Steve Young would have to play. And that got really complicated. On a chilly December afternoon, Joe Montana, Ronnie Lott, among those not suited up for the 49ers today. Joe Montana, when we talked to him yesterday, watched him practice, he practiced and thought that he would play uh, the first half and then we got word today that uh, he woke up and he has a little groin problem and they decided not to even dress Joe Montana today. So if you had to if you had to sum it up, do you think Walsh just went into this saying, okay, Mon- it, all things equal, Montana's my guy, but I do need an insurance policy. And Steve Young is that insurance policy and we just had to use it quite often, as you said, between... 1986 NFC Championship and 1987 Steve Young comes in and throws 10 touchdowns all these different times when Steve Young did get to play just a little bit and there was a point where Steve Young absolutely looked different than he did in Tampa Bay right and it was like hey when he gets an opportunity he's looking pretty good but it really Bill Walsh has really been con- consistent Dan in saying that hey this guy's my number one quarterback he is the starter but only when he's 100% healthy he's not 100% today and so Steve Young is getting his second start yeah, and I also think that so Walsh did things in a different way. You know, he's I th- <laughs> it seems insane to be comparing Bill Walsh to you, but like Thank you. They, he seemed to have some of the same uh, theories about quarterback play. Like even when Montana came in, he was doing weird stuff with Montana and Steve DeBerg. Like he would have Steve DeBerg would be like the twenty to twenty quarterback, and then Montana would come in for the red zone. Like he would set him up in favorable situations to, to be good and that was how that was how sort of Montana's tra- uh, transition into the starting job started so I think he was just prepared to do weird stuff with quarterbacks that most coaches are not and the same thing happened when Young came in you know he whether it was spark, whether, whether he believed or not that he needed like a replacement to begin with once he had him there it's like well I've got this great backup who's making uh, Montana play harder I can put him in, in in occasional spots because he's a like a hell of an athlete. This guy, you know, was one of the fastest guys on any team he's been on. So we can put him in for like Taysom Hill package plays or even just strange situations to make a defense um, concerned about his athleticism. So I think once he got him there, he just kind of leaned into it a bit. Uh, that that that's Bill trying to get a really good player in the door, and Bill was as smooth as you can get when it comes to finding ways to set someone up, but also smooth enough to understand that I got to do this because 
you know, I'm planning for the future. Having Steve Young there acted as a stimulus, acted as a motivator, um, because in competition with someone, Joe Montana was fierce. I mean, he fought like a junkyard dog, and arguably having Steve there pushed him to his greatest years ever. The other thing I think that made this situation so unique is that both players fed into this. So I think one of the things that differentiates it from, you know, a, any current or recent quarterback controversy is if there, if this happens now, Brett Favre, Aaron Rodgers, right? There is an official party line that everybody buys into, and this is what we say, right? It's it's everyone's not singing from the same hymn sheet, and we're all we all recognize this guy as the starter, and blah blah. blah. But from like day one, everybody involved in this was talking this up as a real competition. You know, Steve Young is constantly saying he's he's eager to play, he's trying to play. Joe Montana is constantly talking in the press about how he's getting it, you know, he's got this guy breathing down his neck, he has to play well, you know, he's got a backup looking to steal his job. Bill Walsh comes out and legitimately just says they have two quarterbacks, they have to make a call between them. Like he actively stokes the flames of this thing. Nobody is playing this down, and this goes on for years. Whether it was a quarterback or a running back or a cornerback, it wouldn't want to make any difference. He wanted competition at the highest level because he thought that brought out the best in a player. And so there's no doubt that uh, I think Bill, uh, probably without actually saying so, thought it was great that uh, they were competing so hard against one another because it would make them both perform at their highest level. It seemed like it worked because you got the most out of the late 49ers Montana career and you got and, and it didn't hurt Steve Young it didn't hurt his development because if anything it probably helped it because before you know it you know he's an MVP as well so Walsh seemed to play it the right way I'd say it seems that on several occasions you know Montana may have just been a game away from losing his job permanently you know long term way before it actually happened um, and one of the things I think that really fanned the flames of the controversy was this 1987 game against the Vikings, right? And for these Minnesota Vikings, they are the underdogs in a very big way. What can they do to beat the 49 Well, I think Minnesota, first of all... 87 was a weird year. It was, you know, the strike year. Everything was kind of screwy in the league that season. The 49ers have been dominant. They host the Vikings. They're massive favorites. They should walk through this game. We have a stunned candlestick park. Long way to go on this one, but the Vikings are dominating 20-3, And they end up getting upset by the Vikings. And this kind of changed everything. And one of the things that it changes, at some point in this game, early in the third quarter, Montana gets benched. Joe, a rare occurrence where you see Joe Montana lifted from a game. Well, I think the reason why they lift him is this statistic right here. Steve Young is a better runner. In these field conditions, they may have to have him scramble. Play action pass and wide open Roger Gray. Steve Young comes in, scores a touchdown pretty early on. Doesn't really get them that close to the comeback, but he played well enough that it now became a thing. It's like, look, Montana got pulled in the playoffs. You know, they, he got benched on a, on a drive that they were about to start from the Vikings' 45-yard line. Like, they were about to have really good field position with plenty of time left on the clock. At the minimum, it seems like you should be giving Montana that, you know, advantageous drive to see if he can start something and then figure out what you want to do. But instead, he pulls him, sends in Steve Young, and that is like, you know, pouring gas on this quarterback controversy. 
if we were in social media land and Joe Montana continued to be a healthy scratch over and over again, like how many articles are written and how many were back then? Like, all right, we're moving on. You know, the, you know, I don't even know if they weren't even, they weren't even calling it a dynasty back then. They only had two Super Bowls. They hadn't won since 1984. So in 88, they're, they're saying, all right, Montana's had his run with the Niners. He must, it must be over with Steve Young now taking over. And that couldn't have been further from the truth. And I think at the point, like almost right up until he started that next run for the next Super Bowl, he was in real danger of losing that starting job. And then, then Montana becomes the final version of Montana, right? He gets goes on the run, wins two more Super Bowls, executes the drive, 92 yards for the touchdown. Hey, this is complete domination. The 49er offense has beaten the Denver Bronco defense every way a defense can be beaten. Wrecks the Denver Broncos, 55-10. You know, now Montana is, is Montana. He's secure. He's MVP again. He is unimpeachable at this point. Um, but then the door gets firmly open for Steve Young, right? Montana finally gets an injury that puts him out for an extended period of time, an elbow injury. Literally doesn't play for two years. And during that two-year period, Steve Young comes in, looks fantastic, wins MVP himself, but the team regresses. The team doesn't win a Super Bowl, so it almost doesn't count. And what I think was truly insane to me is they were genuinely thinking about benching the reigning MVP to put Montana back in the lineup. And that was the um, effect of sitting behind an icon. They were giving that job to Montana. And when you looked at the reaction of writers and fans and everyone else, it was like, from my perspective, why even fight this? Just Montana's team. It took Montana essentially requesting a trade to stop the chaos. Like, they they wanted them to compete for the job again. Then it almost became Montana's job to lose again. It had gone from, well, of course, Steve Young's the quarterback. He's the MVP to, you know, legitimate people, including the owner, Eddie DeBartolo, wanted, you know, Joe Montana was the guy. They wanted him back in the lineup. It started at that point, I think, to really divide the locker room. You had this new generation, you know, the Pepsi generation. And the old Coke bottles and, and the, you know, the old guys, I mean, it was going to be hard for Steve to play. And I think the reason they let Joe go to Kansas City was that was the only way that I think that he could be comfortable. So it was dividing the locker room. And ultimately, Montana just went, look, if I'm not guaranteed the starting position, I, I, trade me away. Look, the, the Chiefs are going to make an offer. There's other teams in this. I, I want a starting job at this point, even if it's not in San Francisco. For a cup, for a minute there, it looked like, hey, yeah, I'm not. It's not necessarily the wrong move going young over Montana because Montana is pro, you know, fragile and retired at this point. But is Steve Young gonna be able to do what Joe Montana did? Was Joe Montana's Joe Cool fourth quarter comebacks the special that he brought? Was that a big difference between him and Steve Young? And Steve Young didn't have. More than just that one Super Bowl, but he got it. You know, he got that Super Bowl and um, wasn't as dramatic as Joe Montana's, but no, he showed that they could win with him. 
Yeah, Steve Young's arc in all this is really fascinating because we've had the USFL, we've had Tampa Bay, we've had these series of almost of failures, of, of disappointments, and then he has to sit behind Joe Montana for years, and it's just, it's, it's eating him alive. There, there was one point where we were at a Chinese restaurant in Palo Alto, and we're out to dinner, and Steve looks across the table at me and he says, don't feel obligated to continue representing me. I'm like, what? <laughs> and he said, you know, I, I know you expected me to be a starter, and, and here I am sitting behind Joe Montana. And I said, Steve, are you kidding? This relationship is through thick and thin. This is for, you know, the life and your career. And But at, at a certain point, I mean, you know, that's how frustrated he was. But it probably makes him better. He has to sit behind Montana. He has to learn. He gets to develop within the Bill Walsh system, which he recognized as just streets ahead of any other quarterback environment at the time. I mean, I think it helped Patrick Mahomes to to sit for a year behind uh, a mentor. And he, even if Joe wasn't mentoring Steve by taking him under his wing and you know saying you could do this better, this better, here's what you do in this situation. Steve watched it happening and was in the same quarterback room. And so I, I think it was helpful. And then ultimately, it all ends well. He may lose to Montana in 94 after Montana goes to Kansas City, but Steve Young gets his Super Bowl. And then that famous monkey comes off his back, and he has that sense of relief and of victory. And finally, he gets a chance to feel what it's like to be Joe Montana, to be the one that's beloved, the one that brought San Francisco a Super Bowl. Maybe my favorite part about the sort of the almost the postscript to this controversy is like Montana still shows just these these little like reminders in Kansas City that he's still that guy, right? Like he plays they play the the 49ers in '94. We have that game graded before last Super Bowl. You know, they all said the right things uh, in the media that day, and they actually did uh, meet and shook hands before the game started, and everything was civil. Um, and Montana didn't, you know, go out of his way to tell the players, you know, I got to win this game, I got to win this game, because he would never do that. But there were players in the Chiefs locker room who told me, uh, we knew this was an important game for Joe, that it wasn't just another regular season game. And he really wanted to show them up. And, you know, you can understand the flip side. Uh, for Young to, to face Joe Montana on the national stage. And Montana and Young are two of the three best players on the field, Derek Thomas being the other one for the Chiefs. But again, Montana comes out on top. The Chiefs beat the 49ers 24-17. to After Monday night, they were saying the 49ers... We're the best team in the league. Then he goes toe-to-toe with John Elway in this great dueling game, brings the, chi- uh, the Chiefs back for yet one more comeback, like right at the death. Joe over the middle to the tight end, Green. He takes it to the five-yard line. To the rookie, Green. They have a timeout left. Elway was the was captain comeback. Montana goes out there and goes, no, 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 this is what I do. Take a seat, John. I'm going to show you how this is done. I'm going to win it at the death. He throws to the end zone. It 
You know, and then eventually he ends up retiring. But even as a chief, you see these little glimpses of Montana still being Montana and wanting to go out there and prove to people that, you know, I'm still the guy. Uh, yeah, Montana still had a little bit, you know, left. But that was when you started to see, okay, the transition did make sense. Um, so, like, when you look back at it, from a timing standpoint, and Bill Walsh is gone by that point, right? It's George Seifert. But did they play it right? Did they play it right all the way through, whether it's 1987, 88, 89, all the way to the point where, okay, Steve Young is forced to take over, and then at that point he's not relinquishing the job, but even though they were going to open it back up to Joe, did they make the, the right moves all along the way? They end up getting the best insurance policy in football at a time where Joe Montana was starting to break down, starting to get fragile, starting to suffer injuries. They're able to cover up two years of no Montana when he does finally get hurt and Steve Young wins an MVP in that period. Yeah, they were effectively able to corner the market on quality quarterback play, have the best backup in the league sitting around, probably improve the level of Joe Montana while he was still starting develop his successor to the point where he became a Hall of Fame quarterback himself and then only for you know a, a bit of a messy exit on the way out with Montana leaving the whole thing all it cost you was some some chaos some media furore um, and a little bit of you know spent ink and tears but functionally it worked uh, you have to credit the overall system environment Jerry Rice the playmakers that were there plus the fact that montana was perfect for what they were doing and again i think it would be crazy on the surface to take a steve young who did not have i mean three touchdowns versus eight interceptions in his first season with tampa bay eight versus 13 completing in the low 50s like he looked statistically in the nfl nothing like a future hall of famer but for bill walsh to go in on him and say I see the skills. I see the skills that can translate. I see the athleticism, too. We didn't even add that component, right? Montana could move around, but Steve Young could scramble and pick up yards and be an actual weapon, you know, as a, as a runner. And then to develop not just the accuracy, I mean, not just the completion percentage, but the accuracy to put the ball on Jerry Rice's front number the way you're supposed to in the system so he can catch and run. I mean, to me, all of that is the fascinating part about this whole thing. Montana's great. But the fact that you could actually take a guy who right now looks like a Taysom Hill or a Josh Allen and pure upside and potential and actually develop him and, and have him reach that upside and have him reach the Hall of Fame. I think that's incredible by uh, everyone involved. So there we go. And that's going to do it for our second episode of an oral history. This one, Joe Montana versus Steve Young, the most intriguing quarterback controversy in NFL history. Thanks to Steve for being a part of this podcast. Uh, thanks to Tyler Sobchak for putting it all together. And thanks to the people that we interviewed, Ronnie Lott, Adam Lazarus, Lee Steinberg, and Joe Starkey. Hopefully you've enjoyed this episode. Let us know. Go to the comments section. Leave us a positive review. Let us know what you thought. Send an email to podcasts at pff.com or send me a message on Twitter at pff underscore Sam. Hope you've enjoyed this one. Talk to you again soon.